I was sifting around. I was trying to find something that uh, uh, we could use as a cold open. And I realized we haven't talked about Cineclub yet. <laughs> There's oh. a look of non-recognition on your face. <laughs> Wait, is this the movie subscription thing? That's Yeah, Cineplex has been working on for like yeah, two or for... three years. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, like last we talked about it was in Alberta, though. Yeah, and they were calling it like Scene Gold. So, there was like a gold tier on the pre-existing loyalty program. But they've since changed track a little bit. They're calling it Cine Club. It'll be $10 a month, Canadian, of course. And what you get is one free movie ticket plus special pricing for the movie tickets that you buy in addition to that. And then 20% off concessions. That sounds like a great deal. They really want us back in the theaters. And I was like, at first I thought maybe it was some sort of like, it was too good to be true or there was some condition. But so far, I don't see any. So I might actually have to sign up. I mean, not that I'm looking for more subscription services. Join the club. Wow, I can get it. Awesome. So like, I mean, there's some good stuff coming out in the next couple of months. So I feel like I might have to take advantage of this. Welcome to the 98th episode of the Extra Buttery Podcast. My name is Jason Chen in Vancouver, and I'm joined by Robert Snow in Toronto. Hello, hello. And today we're talking about Shang-Chi, then The Legend of the Ten Rings, Marvel's newest film, and Rob's outings at TIFF. He's been busy the past two weeks, week and a half, Yep, catching all the films he can, and he's going to bring us up to date on what he liked and didn't like. So, But first, the big Marvel release. Yes. And I mean, this came out uh, earlier in September. We haven't had a chance to talk about it yet. I, I mean, I, w- I went into it with pretty, with, with no, no real expectations. I mean, you, you do kind of know what to expect from Marvel at this point, uh, whether it's um, slightly better than average or just average, like it's very rare for them to turn in a stinker. So I, I think that's kind of what I, what I had going in. I didn't know the character at all. Um, I don't know how familiar you were with the comic. Nope. I thought I could change my name. Start a new life. But I could never escape his shadow. The, the, the interesting thing I want to hear from you, actually, is there's been a tide of, like, differing opinions from Asian critics, particularly, about Shang-Chi. Okay. Because... Like some of them are like, oh, it's a fantastic uh, moment for representation. Asians on screen leading a big blockbuster movie. And then you've got probably an equal number of critics who are saying, no, it's gross. It's garbage. It perpetuates stereotypes. Um, I hate it. It should never have been made. So and maybe they're, they're Those voices are getting drowned out by just the fact that, like, you know, it's one of the better performing Disney movies of the year. So it is like, you know, commercially it's doing well, better than Black Widow. Um, so I, I wonder where you fit in on that. You kind of hate to say it, but some stereotypes are, are based on certain truths, right? Like, otherwise you wouldn't have them. So, yeah, I agree. There are certain stereotypes in the movie that that is perpetuated. I have different issues about, like, the Asian-ness, quote-unquote Asian-ness of the film. Anyway, I didn't really focus on that. But I think my problem was coming into this with pretty high expectations. So... When this project was first announced, I was like, ah, oh, whatever. I don't know who this character is. I don't care. Um, they're going to make a di- big deal about like having an all Asian cast, like Crazy Rich Asians, which is completely overrated, or Black Panther. I'd even go as far to say as Crazy Rich Asians just a bad movie. <laughs> and as we got closer to release date, I was like, there's a part of me that really wanted it to succeed, just because it would obviously be helpful in like, breaking down barriers and, and desanitizing Hollywood, certain aspects of white Hollywood, I guess. Uh, funnily enough, it's not allowed to be uh, released in China. At all? Like Disney Disney took that loss on it? I don't know about at all, but I mean, it's not released in China. I don't know what the reason is. It's odd to me it isn't, but uh, there is a reason for it, I'm sure. But anyway, uh, so my thing with Asianness in in Hollywood is that like, it always treats Asians as like a monolithic culture. So like if you have a good year and most people do, you can tell the difference between like an English accent or an Irish accent or a Scottish accent. Like, you know, right away, like an Australian accent. Of course. Well, 
like Western audiences can't tell the difference between all these different accents in, in Asian culture, even though they're all speaking Mandarin. Um, just based on their accent, you can tell where they're from. And that was probably the one thing that bugged me the most was all the different accents, which is kind of cool. But at the same time, it was clear that they weren't originally from whatever area they're supposed to be from in the movie. Like they're all, not all Chinese is what I'm trying to say, or not all of them are of Hong Kong descent or whatever it is, whatever they're supposed to be. There are certain words that I think they translate in certain words for they don't for whatever reason. So you remember the scene where Shang-Chi uh, goes to Katie's apartment and eats breakfast with her family. Yeah. And then her grandma is there, right? And he calls her Waipool. And then in the subtitles, they literally translate that phonetically into Waipo. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> Which is really funny to me because they don't do that for certain other words. Waipo or Waipo is just maternal grandmother. That's all it means. Oh, okay. So they could have just easily translated that to grandma. I don't know why they use that. And, and like, I, I guess certain like you you kind of want to keep certain aspects of the culture like so mama papa opa oma like they keep that in certain movies because you know who they're referring to i just thought that was a really strange choice because it's not it doesn't sound like what you would usually call grandpa in like nordic languages or grandma i should say the only reason i can think of in that particular case is that she's not technically shang chi's maternal grandmother she's uh, his friend's grandmother so maybe yeah yeah like th- that that's another thing too like he should be calling her not something other than than Waipool. like auntie yeah yeah yeah, yeah something yeah. like that or or like oh katie's grandma like something like that you don't that's not your maternal grandmother you don't call people like that but so. aside from like the, the the very specific linguistic things like well should we do a um uh, a plot thing first <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, should, please do <laughs> i i start sorry i started just like i dove right into it well no i mean it's that's it's clearly something that that bothered you so um no but the so the plot here is uh you know it's it's your basic marvel origin story we've got a young soon-to-be hero who has grown up in america for most of his teenage years and when we meet him he's he's doing valet parking for a hotel Alongside his best friend, uh, Katie, played by Aquafina. And over time, we discover that he's been living in San Francisco for a number of years, but he actually has a dark past. And he was raised by this brutal warlord played by Tony Young Chu Lai, who is the Mandarin, the arch villain who we've heard references to in the past going all the way back to iron man 3 he's uh, supposed to have been in the shadows this whole time actually he's the only comic book character i knew from like going into this the mandarin right okay yeah and uh, so we discovered that the mandarin played by tony lung is uh he possesses these 10 rings which are you know the 10 rings of the title and they're these mystical objects which give him all sorts of cool fighting powers, prolongs his life indefinitely. And this, uh, for throughout the thousands of years that he's been alive, he's been searching for access to this mystical realm that uh, will supposedly grant him even more power. And this is actually the realm that his wife is from. And through a series of events, we discover that his wife was killed and this sent him kind of spiraling into a depression um, his warlord tendencies came back. His This drove his son and daughter away, and they ended up, you know, leaving the compound and uh, forging new lives of their own. Um, but, of course, all of these people are going to come back together for this plot where Tony Lung's character wants to reinvigorate his search for this mystical realm, and Shang-Chi and his friends and family are the only people who can stop him. Boom. Big Marvel uh, showdown time. Uh, so, yeah, that's... A hackneyed synopsis, but no, that was very good. That's very thorough. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it's it's a it's your basic origin story. You've got a a guy who is unsu- uh, unsupposing or um, you know hasn't discovered his true potential, but slowly unlocks it over the course of the film. And the bonus here, I guess, is that it does try to work in pieces of Chinese mythology, although how accurate or how 
um, appropriate some of those choices are. I have no idea. <laughs> I, you know, it's my first time, first time seeing a lot of these mystical creatures and their relationships to each other. So I don't even know if it's just like some sort of uh, cosmic hodgepodge or what's going on. <laughs> I like that cosmic hodgepodge. The CGI didn't bother you a little bit. Like, especially when they're driving through the forest? Uh, Yeah, actually, I will say that there were some scenes that really stuck out like a sore th- thumb. Not so much yeah. the action scenes where there's a lot of movement happening and you're kind of distracted, but there's a lot of scenes that look like they were shot on the Mandalorian set, you know, with the, <laughs> with the digital background. Aren't, aren't they supposed to look good, though? Well, that's the thing. I mean, in, in the Mandalorian, it blends pretty seamlessly, and you can't really tell that they're on a set but here you could see the you could almost see like the edges the green screen edges around some of the characters in certain scenes especially when yeah like when they are coming out of that car from the mystical bamboo forest that tries to kill them and they step out into this strange realm that they've entered the cutout like they look like they were just sort of hastily pasted into yeah, the yeah, scene. Yeah. It, it looks very much like it was a green screen yeah and, and that happened a couple of times but the edges are a little too hard if that makes any sense. And I don't really get that because they have infinite money. So I'm not sure what. But I was going to say, like, this is the exact same thing that happened to Black Panther. Yeah. Like the CGI kind of killed it. And I felt like a similar thing happened here. The CGI kind of killed certain aspects of it. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like the the lions, like when they go into what's that mystical place they go to? Can't remember the name. Anyway, this mis- mystical place. And there's all these like mystical creatures. There's like the lions and the dragons. Those look cool. Um, that was very well done. But yeah, certain scenes, uh, the fight choreography, like they made a big deal of. And I, I actually really appreciate it, especially the fight on the train. It was very, um, it wasn't just kicks and punches. Like he was wrapping things around with his jacket. And, oh, yeah. You know, all these like little jumps and hops and everything. That's very uh, reminiscent of old like martial arts films in Hong Kong where like, it's not really about the punches and the kicks. It's kind of like the surrounding. Like Jackie Chan was famous for it. Yes. Right? Yeah. Like he didn't see an object he didn't use as a weapon. It was kind of similar. Yeah. The CGI, like there's one part where like they're fighting on the bus and it's about to crash. And like, and Shang-Chi like jumps out the window and does like a 360 back to like the front door of the bus. Yeah. And you're just like, this is, this feels completely unnecessary. It's like when Legolas jumps like on the horse, like oh yeah, when the horse is riding back, and Legolas does like a three sixty spin, yeah, yeah, back on top. It, it's it's little things like that, and and you know like the the head ninja that that the Mandarin uses, he does nothing. He's the worst henchman ever, like a Japanese. Yeah, style he's got that mask. cool. Yeah. yeah, he's got the cool mask and does nothing. Like what's yeah, up I think he like they they just kill him off in in a quick scene towards the the end of the climax or something i know it's like dude doesn't feel like he's uh he's very important at all yeah um but i also i wanted to ask you what you thought about the plot because coming out of it i was like the first thought i had was i still don't know anything about the 10 rings and what exactly they do and like what exactly makes someone worthy of them i'm yeah i'm i'm kind of behind or i missed out upon this this lore yeah they seem to have like they respect a certain master basically they like whoever is the most powerful and most worthy they they tend to gravitate to that person and there's no test for it it's just kind of like arbitrary kind of are they like the skywalker family just seems to be yeah yeah um, but yeah, they, they grant eternal life or whatever. Um, they, you can use them as weapons. You can like fire energy blasts from them. They sort of have like whatever power you need in the moment. They have that. They're also like a strange mystical lock that will lock and unlock this ancient evil that ends up being mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. late third act, um, reveal that, you know, Tony Lung is not actually the, the worst thing in the world. It's this horrible monster living behind a rock wall. Did you like Tony Leung's character? I liked him. I thought, you know, compared to some Marvel villains that we've had in the past, he really, he walked a a very fine line between charming and charismatic and conflicted. He was at least kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, like you, you don't, you don't really get a lot of evidence for some of the crimes that he's alleged to have carried out. Like you don't see him other than that war scene in the beginning that's set in the ancient history of China you don't see you just it's just sort of taken as an assumption that he's a warlord and that he's doing nasty stuff and he's got this compound in the mountains as a result of it um so you don't see him like murdering people or doing anything really despicable you just know that he's a villain 
And then um, at the same time, he's like a family man who does apparently care for his children, really misses his wife. And his main reason for trying to unlock this door that he uh, he that Shang-Chi knows has this ancient evil behind it. Tony Lung wants to unlock it because he believes that his his dead wife can be released from hell or something. And so that is that's his motivation there, which is more interesting than just like, hey, hey I'm going to take over the world or something. <laughs> yeah, true. I mean, the things that male characters do for dead woman in movies, right? <laughs> <laughs> this is like the Christopher Nolan specialty. <laughs> yeah, so you're you are trading one cliche for another, like that's totally understandable, but or the way it comes across is I would say like more dynamic, more interesting than some of the Marvel villains we've had before. Um I do think it's interesting though that this is Tony Lung's first re- like major English language role, like of all the things he could have picked. They paid him a lot of money. That's what happened, Rob. But don't you know, they're cracking down on all this stuff in China. Yeah, so maybe he's trying to set himself up for a uh, (laughs) Hollywood career now. Good timing for him. The one thing I wanted to ask you is, I found it very interesting that they kept Shang-Chi and Katie's relationship platonic. Like, they even go out of their way to say it's platonic. This has always been like... Yeah, I think Simu Liu was asked about that. Yeah, and... Like, okay, so what did they say? Because this has always been a Hollywood trope. That, like, whichever female characters is with the Asian guy, it's always assumed to be a platonic relationship. The aspect of him being Asian, I don't think they touched on, but they did ask him, like, why is there, why is this not a romantic one? And he just, yeah. he just said, oh, well, you know, there's so many romantic relationships with superheroes in other movies, we figured it would be... But that's part of the charm. Yeah, so... I mean, he, he figured it would be more interesting if, if it was just a platonic one. So No, it's less interesting. <laughs> Don't you agree? I mean... It, you need romanticism in movies. Sure. I, I, I Though I feel like, you know, sometimes when they do go the romantic route, they barely spend any time showing why these two people are attracted to each other. It's just, and, and they certainly don't follow it. Well, I mean, it doesn't mean you can't do it. No, I know, but like, but they certainly don't follow it through to its logical endpoint, you know, where they, the characters never have sex because it's a, it's a Disney movie. So yeah, that's, that's fine. That's fine. But why go out of your way to say it's platonic? It was very ambiguous in the first place. Yeah. And at the, like at the end, you're just like, all right, like something could happen here. Yeah. But I just like, if you're trying to set all these cultural, like break all these, you know, like stereotypes and, and set all these cultural s- touchstones, like, and I and I hate to cheapen the movie to just like male female sexual relationship, but I, I feel like that's a big part of superhero movies. Like Thor had someone, The Incredible Hulk, Iron Man even ended up with Parapet Potts, um, Captain America, obviously, uh, Spider Man, obviously, but. And these they had love interests that were all introduced in the first movie. And so I don't understand why Katie and Shang-Chi have to be have to be platonic. Like, is it because they're afraid to anger a certain crowd? Is it because it's a harder sell in Asia? It's not. Like Asia's done a ton of romantic movies where Yeah. And so that's one thing that really bothered me too. It's a really good point because the, uh, yeah, like like you said, it's um, you don't see a lot of Asian male leads uh, being romantic male leads all that often. So No, and look back at all the movies that Jackie Chan and Jet Li did in North America. How many of them do you see them kissing a woman? This is a changing topic entirely, but what do you make of the final battle like the third act fight the climax with the dragon and the armies squaring off it looked nice that's what the dragon looked nice the the rest of the battle was was kind of like bad star wars choreography (laughs) yeah there's a lot of extras kind of like flailing around trying to look like they're doing something yeah there's a lot of flailing there's a lot of like okay i'm gonna go here and then you're gonna do this again like because i didn't quite understand what exactly the ten rings were and and how exactly the whole mythology worked, I was just kind of like, oh, cool. Like a dragon is defeating the sea monster. That's huge. Wow, that's this could be a Godzilla movie and I had, I'd be none the wiser. <laughs> but don't you think that it kind of takes away from Shang-Chi's ability to save the day? Like all he did was ride a dragon. Great. He rides a dragon. Well, then he uses the Ten Rings to kind of like drill into the heart of the thing and like blow it up or whatever. <sighs> I guess. <laughs> that's that's right at the end after basically getting his ass it's got he uses uh slinky arms just scratch him from the inside <laughs> bounces around you know it's like drax with the daggers slicing it from the inside but he's got rings 
<laughs> Basically, yeah. Actually, well, let's talk about the Ten Rings a little bit more. Oh, okay. True to form. We're going on tangents and we have no idea where this is going. This is actually one of the biggest examples of a retcon in Marvel's history, I think. Oh, right. Because there's a bit of exposition midway through the movie where Tony Lung explains how he is the Mandarin, but then there's also this um, this actor played by Ben Kingsley. Trevor. Trevor, who we all sort of hated in Iron Man 3. Fucking Trevor. I hated him so much. He was the he was the fake Mandarin who was the cover for the villain played by Guy Pierce in Iron Man 3. I was so looking forward to the Mandarin that I was willing to forgive that they cast Ben Kingsley in that role. But anyway, sorry to interrupt. But then the part that confused me and the the, the retcon that I that most concerns me is that Tony Lung says, Oh well, you know, Guy Pierce's character, he's not mentioned by name, I don't think they don't actually say Killian, but they say, I lent out the Ten Rings a couple of years ago to some guy, and he, you know, he used my name as a front. And I'm like, but that as, that doesn't connect to... He lent them out? Yeah. But- <laughs> what was the interest charge yeah, on that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I was like, that doesn't line up with Iron Man 3 at all. As far as Iron Man 3 is concerned, uh, setting aside the Ben Kingsley Mandarin performance thing... Uh, the majority of that thing had to do with like Killian injecting stuff into victims and making them explode. Like this desire to retcon and that like 20 minute exposition with that useless, su- stupid no face thing. <laughs> you didn't like the no face. That is the reason why our superhero movies are two hours and 30 minutes and not two hours and 10 minutes. That was, I was just infuriating. I was like, you were on such a roll. I was looking forward to everything. And now you throw Ben Kingsley back. I liked the no face creature thing. I thought it was cute. It has no face. What's cute? <laughs> it's fuzzy and it has six legs. It makes fun sounds. <laughs> sure, you can't relate to it, but no, it looks like looks like something I put my feet up on. <laughs> no, but but the the fact that it had to be Ben Kingsley delivering all of that was you know you take it or leave it, right? I mean, I I don't I don't know anybody who really likes his character. Oh, going back to uh, characters, I find it amazing again, like how they make aquafina like a fierce archer within the span of what two days one day basically yeah it's, it's alleged that like all she needed was to focus this whole time she yeah could've... rob you and i need to focus more she misses a lot of shots that's for sure her, her mentor guy is just lifted onto the gra- into the air and he has his soul sucked out by those bat things i know that that guy is a really famous actor uh see show, i mean actually. i can't remember his he name, got so. done very dirty in that case uh, but yeah, should we get into talking about Tiff? Sure. And there wasn't as much fanfare, I felt. No, they didn't have as many like big ticket, um, possible Oscar contender type movies. Obviously, there will be a few that make it all the way to the Oscars. But uh, yeah, it wasn't quite the banner year that it, it had been pre-COVID. So, But uh, I just mean like in terms of just like all the events and all the celebrities and and stars and actors and people coming to town. Yeah, yeah. Um, Now, I sent you the list of the stuff that I watched. Uh, Did you look it over? Was there anything that uh, jumped out from there? Because I watched 10 movies. We don't we can't talk about 10 movies in the segment, but why not? Well, I guess we could speed round them. But yeah, that would there's got to be a few that that we get talk about more than we talk about others. Okay, yeah. Okay, so. Well, it's just funny enough, I would like, you told me the names and I, I made like some notes on them, like what they're about and blah, blah, blah. So, okay. okay. For, <laughs> What's up first? For, well, I was just going to say this one sounded just particularly funny after I wrote it. Uh, out of sync, sound editor su- suffers from delayed hearing, gets hit by car. Yeah. <laughs> that does happen. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know why, but that just made me laugh. Because it sounds like a comedy now, but it's supposed to be like this super serious film. Te he vuelto a pasar. ¿El qué? Lo de las voces. ¿Qué voces? Yeah, well, I mean... Um, so l- talk to me about that first, because that one was just... No, I mean, that's, that one is actually one of the ones I like the best of the ones I saw. Um, the But you're right. I mean, it uh, when you when you chain those events together, it does sound a bit like a comedy, but, but it's... Uh, <laughs> The trailer, I'm looking back on it. I'm like, this could be cut as a comedy and I wouldn't wouldn't be any wiser. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. <laughs> no, but in the in, in the actual movie, it's actually like a not a serious well, it's a serious thing that happens to her, but it's only like it's just meant to reinforce what 
this, this medical condition or whatever that she's she's suffering from. But yeah, basically, it's a Spanish film. Uh, she plays a sound editor who um, has gets this progressively more delayed uh, hearing. So she'll try like clapping, making a clapping sound, and then it'll it'll be like ninety seconds later that she'll actually hear it. And all the doctors she goes to can't explain it. She has MRIs. There's no evidence. Um, so then the movie starts suggesting that maybe it's like a mental illness thing. Like maybe it's it's an illness that she picked up from her mother. So then, um, you know, if it was just that, if the movie was was just kind of like a, a short meditation on mental illness or something, it might have been a little bit boring. So they amplify it a little bit and they actually make her delayed hearing into a bit of a superpower where she doesn't use it to fight crimes or anything, but she discovers that she's able to walk over to a space where people had been standing and talking and then she's but they've since left and then when she stands in that space she can hear the conversation they were having so she can sort of snoop on people and get information that she otherwise wouldn't be able to and it becomes a bit of like an ability of hers that she learns how to control a little bit they don't take it very far like she doesn't really it's not like she's able to um, join the MCU. <laughs> join the MCU, exactly. It's not. It's not one of those things. It's just more of like kind of a quiet little um, look at this strange sit- situation that happens to her and uh, how it affects her life. When we first meet her, she's kind of on the rocks. She um, she's getting kicked out of her apartment. She's not doing very well at work. Um, but then it's through this kind of tumultuous experience that she's able to um, find a new boyfriend, find out some of uh, her hidden past that her adoptive mother had kind of kept from her, things like that. So I heard Flea was a uh, was a big hit. Hvad betyder ordet hjem for dig? Hjem er noget som er trygt. Kabul, les attaques des mujahidin repris. Yeah, Flea was actually of the ones I saw was probably the highest ranked um what do you think i i really liked it i mean it's uh it is a documentary but an animated documentary so what they've done is they've collected all of the footage the way you normally would and then they've brought in animators to basically draw over the frames uh, i guess they probably use some form of rotoscoping the way like they did in scanner darkly and and other movies like that but they play it back at kind of like a slower frame rate so it's it feels a lot kind of more jerky and hand-drawn and it's just the story of this man living in Denmark who immigrated from Afghanistan and how he he left Afghanistan while well, the Taliban was in control the first time in the late 90s and how he he and his family were kind of scattered all across northern Europe and Scandinavia and they had this horrible series of events where they were living as undocumented refugees in M- Moscow for a time and they were trying to use like um human traffickers to get them across the border into places where they would get better treatment and uh, how he's basically hidden this part of his life from everyone, including his boyfriend who he met in Denmark. And he's been terrified to tell anybody about it because he's, he's convinced that if anybody knows, then he might get kicked out of Denmark and sent back to Afghanistan or something. Um, One of these films that uses the animation to kind of, um, draw you in a little bit more than maybe a standard documentary would. And um, yeah, a lot of it is just done through like first person interviews between the filmmaker and uh, the subject. Um, seven Prisoners. This So this one was, I, I looked at this trailer. Okay, so this is about seven kids who get trapped in a compound and they have to escape human traffickers or something uh, not kids like like young men basically how, how did how did they get so dumb and get roped into this <laughs> uh so this is a brazilian film um filmmaker named uh, alexandra morato um and this is all about a g- young guy named mateus who grows up in a rural village outside of uh, sao paulo and basically like he is the smartest guy in his village like he's and he's only achieved a grade eight education he's not very smart eh <laughs> yeah like he's literally like some of those guys that he that he travels to sao paulo with uh they can't even read but that's the level of education in the village so being the smartest he's kind of like the shining 
example of their village, but they they know that they won't get very many job opportunities there no matter how educated they are. So they agree to go and work in this scrapyard run by a character named Luca, played by Rodrigo Santaro. People will remember Rodrigo Santaro from, he played Xerxes in the 300 films, um, and he was on Lost for a while. I think he popped up in that Jamie Foxx movie, Project Power, for Netflix a while back. He plays the scrapyard owner who brings these guys in and convinces them that he's going to be sending all this money back to their families in the rural village, but then it swiftly becomes obvious that they're basically slaves. And he locks them in and he says, I'm not going to pay you. I'm going to give you some food, but you have to work uh, overtime every single day for no pay and you're not allowed to leave. And then it becomes a story of like, are these guys going to be able to get out of this situation? And how will Mateus use his, his extra education as an asset? At the same time, there's also this thing bubbling beneath the surface where you see the scope of the human trafficking operation in Sao Paulo, how like all these grungy businesses rely on basically slaves to operate and how Mateus gets drawn deeper and deeper into the circle of trust with these criminals. And then you begin to question whether he will actually become a human trafficker himself and kind of leave the guys that he was imprisoned with uh, to, you know, rot basically. And he'll end up becoming uh, a criminal himself. So it ends up being this kind of... So the trailer does the movie no justice at all. It sounds like it. I didn't watch the trailer, but yeah. (laughs) Okay, because the way the trailer is cut, it looks like seven kids like are trapped in a building and they have to like basically fight their way out of it. Yeah. There's definitely like, at first it becomes an escape film and they make a few attempts, but the longer they spend in there, the the less likely it is that they're going to get out. Yeah. The dynamics between about how he becomes like, he kind of has a Stockholm syndrome becomes complicit is, is the way more interesting part about this film. Yeah. Yeah. And this one will be pretty easy to watch. I'm pretty sure it's coming to Netflix in November. November. Oh my god! It's one of the the foreign films that uh, Netflix wanted to acquire out of uh, the festival. So, uh, Night Raiders, post apocalyptic story about rebels fighting drones. That's what I got from the trailer. Is that a child? No, oh, no, it's okay. See, I was beginning to believe that my boy was the only free one left. And in Canada, no less. Yes, yes, in Canada. Yeah. So this is a Canadian post apocalyptic film, which you really don't see very often. I can only think of like. One other example of like a a movie that actually uses the Canadian environment and doesn't, you know, try to make it look like America. That's because post-apocalyptic in Canada is just the prairies. <laughs> Ooh, uh, there goes our prairie listeners. <laughs> none of them. There's none of them. None. No, it's okay. No, it's okay. Yeah. So this is a film by a uh, Cree filmmaker, I believe, directed by um, uh, Dennis Goulet. Uh, who is a Canadian filmmaker, and um, this is a predominantly indigenous-led movie. Mm -hmm. Um, So the story goes that uh, roughly 20 years or so from now... um, (laughs) 20 years, wow. The Canadian government becomes like a totalitarian empire, and um, there's strict divisions in society. There are haves and have-nots, you know, just like any good post-apocalyptic story. Are they played by the English and the French? (laughs) No. (laughs) No. No, there's no red coats or anything running around. The state has become obsessed with kidnapping all of the children and putting them into state-run schools. So you get this. Oh, okay. I didn't. You didn't tell me this is a documentary, right? Yeah, that's the that's the difficult bit uh, because this is definitely taking a lot of inspiration from real life residential schools that existed in Canada and were operating until like the 1970s and caused no end of torture and terrible things for the local indigenous population. So this is this filmmaker taking that story, imagining what would it, it would be like if that system was brought back to life under some future evil government. And um, it's quite solid. I mean, it's oh, okay. There's definitely some people who were kind of who were at the festival who were kind of bored by it or maybe felt that it was a little too on the nose a little because it really it doesn't do anything to really shake up the genre. You still have you have your oppressive government. You have your freedom fighters who are trying to bust it up and stop some sort of evil behavior. So all of that is very familiar. So the the real bonus here is that it is predominantly indigenous cast. You've got a lot of people speaking Cree and other indigenous languages. Um, and it is, you know, it's 
engagingly shot. I mean, they they put uh, a lot of effort into the uh, the production design, into the design of those drones that you mentioned, which are always hovering around trying to find children to kidnap. And uh, it doesn't look like some cheap Canadian film that you would watch on the public broadcaster or whatever. You can say the three letters, Rob. It's okay. <laughs> CBC. <laughs> it, yeah, it's. I mean, it's. I think it's going to pop up on Crave, which is uh, Bell's streaming service. Um, so it'll be available there. Probably not going to win a whole lot of like international awards. It's not going to be up for any Oscars. But if you want to see some up and coming Canadian filmmakers and actors doing a very genre piece that you wouldn't otherwise see in Canadian production of. Uh, Wait, is it that good that it could be mentioned in the same breath as Oscar? No, no, that's what I'm saying. Like, it's not. It's not going to be in contention for any Oscars. Right, but is it close or is it, like, really far away? Neither. It's kind of like, it's it's just, you know. It's it's just there. Yeah. Okay. It's like a four out of five, maybe three and a half out of five. Like, it's not. Oh, okay. Okay. Because the trailer didn't excite me at, at all. So I, I was curious about that. I was like, how interesting could this be about a bunch of stupid people fighting drones? You had another film that had some CanCon in there. Is it Quickening? How's things going with that guy you like at school? More serious now. Quickening, yeah. So this was one of the only, uh, only two of the movies that I actually saw in person because all the other screenings were digital. Oh, okay. Um, and quickening. This felt like Black Swan Light. A little bit, yeah, because there's kind of like a mental health aspect to it. But uh, this is the story of a young Pakistani-Canadian woman who is in university uh, growing up in the GTA. And it's just a little coming-of-age story, basically. She gets along pretty well with her family, but of course there's a lot of uh, cultural and social expectations for her. All the families in her orbit are always talking about, you know, who's marrying who, um, arranged marriages, um, expectations for the future, getting a good job, providing for the family. And um, she is at a an arts university studying a dance program. Uh, so she's kind of already departing from the usual expectations of her culture, which, you know, put a lot of emphasis on engineering or uh, being a doctor or a lawyer or some, you know, well-paid job. And so she's already kind of an outsider in her own culture a little bit, but she's dealing with a lot of the same experiences that any Canadian kid would have, you know, uh, having a first boyfriend, figuring out school, dealing with other kids, and uh, the main thing that happens to her that really shakes her up is that she begins to believe that she's pregnant, even though she's not. And she becomes obsessed with this idea of the fact that she's carrying a baby inside her, but she's unable to tell anyone around her that this is happening because she's terrified that they'll ostracize her even more. So then the rest of the film is just her kind of grappling with this and, and trying to figure out a way through it. Um, but very, very interestingly shot. Interestingly shot how? It's a female filmmaker named Haya Wasim. And uh, very kind of loose and flowy cinematography. Lots of nature shots. Um, I mean, if you're trying to be really obvious, you could compare it to Terrence Malick, but it's really not his style. It's, it's just the fact that there are long... Uh, locked off shots and you know characters kind of down in the corner of the frame just sort of staring off into the distance type of stuff so if that's your definition of, of Malik then you know I guess that would be the closest comparison but um, <laughs> but uh, no it, it's very much her own thing and uh, even though there's not oftentimes there's not a lot of dialogue it's just this really interesting score playing um, you know, you're still kind of locked into it. And she finds some really, really cool ways to depict these people in what would otherwise be a pretty boring suburban environment. You know, they're in the, the greater Toronto area. They're just, you know, moving between big houses, driving around on roads, walking through forests. You know, it's uh, it's all very basic kind of environments, but uh, she finds very interesting ways to shoot it. Um, learn to swim. So this one was interesting because I... Couldn't find anything about it online other than the fact it's two musicians falling in love. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold up. You feeling this? Was it on the charts? Yeah. Then yeah, I'm feeling it. Yeah, another Canadian film. Um, so I, I ended up watching three films in total that were Canadian this year, which is a bit of a 
I think a record for me. And normally I end up, <laughs> you know, there's bigger uh, awards contenders at TIFF. And, and this year there was more space for the Canadian films. Um, another kind of small film with, you know, a limited cast, just about two jazz musicians who fall in love, but then fall out of love. Um, Is this like that Zendaya film? It's a little, well, mm, that one's kind of more trying to be artsy, but really isn't. This is definitely artsy. Like this, this comes by its artsiness very honestly. Um, And as a result, it would probably alienate some viewers because it's so kind of non-traditional, especially the editing. There's a lot of like characters thinking back about a past experience and then they, they kind of stare off into the distance and then they see themselves reliving that experience with other characters. So there's, they kind of mash present and past together like that. And it can be a bit difficult to figure out where you are in the story sometimes. Up and coming Canadian actress in the the lead female role who previously had only done like theater in Toronto, I think. Um, so she was an interesting talent to discover. Really great music, obviously. It's about jazz musicians. So you get a lot of great band performances and solo performances. Was that the big pull for you? Is that why you picked this? Basically, yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to see, <laughs> you know, what, what what are they saying about the uh, about the Toronto jazz scene? Um, so that was cool. And no white savior for jazz this time, eh? No, no. <laughs> this, is, this is purely experiences within like the black community. So um, yeah, they, they keep it locked on that. Um, but yeah, other than the kind of that editing techniques that I mentioned, there's not a lot else going on here. Like I didn't like this one as much as some of the other stuff I saw just, you know, other than the central romance, which, you know, fires up and then burns out. You're like, oh, okay. That's all there is. There, there was, there wasn't any like a uh, secondary plot or anything to kind of latch onto. Right. Well, there's three I'm saving for the last, because I feel like, uh, those would, be our most talked about okay okay but the but the last one before the big three is uh doug doug this one was like annoying (laughs) the trailer was non-stop barrage of like drums and and trumpets and and colors and it was a huge acid trip i had no idea what was going on Yeah, and that's basically, it's a pretty good indication of the movie itself, which is about 90% montage. <laughs> that's That must have been frustrating. Yes. Imagine a one hour, 44 minute movie that is 90% montage and you have a sense of Doug Doug. Oh. Now, the one thing that Doug Doug has going for it is it is a wild story. It's based on real events in the Indian countryside um, where... The, the filmmaker who um, he spent a lot of, he grew up in India, he says that if you think the things that happen in Doug Doug are wild and crazy, just go to India and you'll see wilder and crazier things. Um, but it centers around this motorcyclist who is having a, is out on a bender one night. He uh, is killed while riding his motorcycle and the local community becomes convinced that he has become a saint. So then they decide to use the motorcycle that he was killed while he was riding it as this sort of relic. And they put it up on a platform and they begin worshiping it and they drape it with flowers. And then as word spreads about miracles that are being performed for people who worship this motorcycle, they then basically build a, a like a minor cult around the worship of this guy and his motorcycle. And apparently this happens in India, like they, they will find, they will venerate certain people as saints and then there'll be some object that becomes the center of a shrine. Um, so this just kind of takes it to... Do you have to die first? I don't know if death is an important part, but... Because I'd volunteer. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, this, like, so you, once you have that story in place, then, like I said, like the rest of the movie is just montages of how crazy and over the top the worship of this thing goes. So it's just like they build more and more lavish temples to house the thing and more and more people come and all of the local businesses change over their branding and colors to match the stuff at the shrine and um there's all of this commerce and stuff connected to it and uh you know uh, it becomes this national phenomenon basically and uh that it's funny at, at points and they they they're clearly poking us poking fun at religion in a kind of kind-hearted way okay um but he runs out of material after about half an hour and then it just keeps going okay skip 
So we're skipping to France. So this is the Léa Seydoux yeah. uh, film that you had previously told me about. I was kind of curious. I watched the trailer and, you know, the one thing I really noticed is like no wartime reporter wears lipstick like she does <laughs> yeah holy is... hell is she wearing a lot of makeup for being someone for like being out in the field in the middle of a war yeah so that is the well it's good that you noticed that because that is one of the main arguments of this filmmaker uh bruno dumont uh who apparently is a big concern in france i had never seen any of his movies before all these french directors are like self-important anyway so <laughs> screw it <laughs> Um, but yeah, this is basically like old man yells at cloud, uh, the movie, uh, but with Leia Sadu, like with a role that was written for Leia Sadu. And oh, okay. so it's, it feels like, I mean, Bruno Dumont's, I like, I do like her. Bruno Dumont's not particularly old. Like I think he's like late fifties, early sixties or something, but it feels like he's just been watching too much TV news and he's upset about how, he, he assumes that everyone on TV news are self-obsessed and they're not in it for reporting for the little people who are watching, you know, or giving voice to the voiceless, as they used to say to us in journalism school. Um, so he feels like that's been lost. So he's created this female TV anchor who is totally vain and self-obsessed and is desperately sad. And she can't put her finger on what it is that's making her sad and you have to just endure this woman's sadness for two hours and 15 minutes. It, this sounds painful. It feels like four hours. I was literally like, and it just keeps going and going and going. And just when you think they've got a shot up that is the final shot before the credits, it keeps going even further. And I was just chanting to myself in the final like half an hour. I was like, end, end, end for Christ's sake. end. it was so bad. Um, easily one of the worst things I've ever seen at TIFF. It's funny how like you and I both have the worst experiences with French films at film festivals. Uh, yeah, I mean, the worst film I've ever seen at VIF was also a French film. Yeah, so it uh, this was definitely in that category, like like faux art house, like taking art house stuff. Fr- French cinema is very interesting. I mean, I, like I always feel like I don't like the same things they do. Yeah, it's possible. Maybe it's a cultural thing. I don't know, but they. Um, like Leia Sadu has done a bunch of perfume commercials and stuff. I mean, she is a, she's a very beautiful woman and she's done a lot of stuff for Dior and major brands. And it's like they crammed all of that work together with this essay by the filmmaker on why TV news sucks and is, has no soul. And so the two pieces are kind of grinding against each other and you really can't figure out if it's trying to be a satire and it's trying to be funny or if it's trying to be serious and, and dramatic. And there's this like, like lugubrious um, electronic synth score that kind of rises and falls and you can't oh that's weird and you can't figure out like is it meant to signal something that's important for us to care about or is it just sort of poking fun like uh, apparently when it, it premiered at con back in may and the audience was also totally baffled they were like what are you trying to do dude like can't figure out if this is what, what's going on here so you there's a few funny moments but they're so few and far between um and you just end up hating the character she doesn't learn from her mistakes so so what does this have to do with the lipstick well just the fact that uh she wears a lipstick while she's in the field making these uh war zone reports and it's supposed to indicate how she's like more obsessed with her personal image than about you know being truthful to the situation or whatever okay um so yeah it would be funny it would be like if they had made it as a out and out satire, it would have been really good. It could have had like a bit of you like, you know, the best parts of the newsroom when the, the HBO show, the newsroom, when they are legitimately funny and they're like, you know, there's some antics happening and they're bungling something because the people's personalities are getting in the way. I've been trying to forget that show. Rob. Oh, sorry. OK. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, there were parts, especially in the first season, when there was some chaos happening in, in the newsroom and Jeff Daniels and his other reporters were trying to sort something out, but they, you know, they kept getting in their own way, tripping over their own feet because they were so, you know, self-obsessed or whatever. That's what this movie could have been if it were good. But yeah, they, they bog it down with all this other garbage and yeah. Okay. Definitely good. skip. Um, the last two. So this one was really interesting. Riz Ahmed vehicle encounter. 
toughest soldiers there ever was. They could survive anything, because they stuck together. Now you're telling me if we don't stand by each other, we can't get through anything? Uh, it's going to be on Amazon soon, so... Yeah. Uh, trailer doesn't show much, doesn't need to tell me much. Um, I've already intrigued because it's got Riz Ahmed. Um, and he's in some sort of like desolate farm land with a gun. Yeah. Okay. So I'm not sure how much they showed in the trailer, uh, but I, I, this was definitely one of my most anticipated because I, I've loved Riz Ahmed's work, everything I've seen him do recently. But, well, not but. I mean, there's some. Some critics who did who thought that this was kind of derivative, but I actually thought it was very good. Um, I don't want to I don't want to spoil too much of it, so I'll, I'll go very high level. But uh, basically, Riz Ahmed plays a former Marine who is um, tracking an alien invasion, and these are aliens that are able to take over the bodies of insects, any kind of insect, Men in Black, a little bit. <laughs> A little bit, um, but the it doesn't have like a big effects budget. It it has a few effects shots, and he uses them very uses them very carefully. He has to rescue his two young sons from uh, their mother, who has since divorced him and married another guy, um, because he believes that their mother and the new husband have been infected, and he takes them on a quote unquote road trip to get them to a safe location, and he uses all of his skills as a marine to protect them. But the longer they're on the trip, the uh, the the more you learn about their relationship, and that's all I'll say because the the movie definitely takes a hard. He's a liar. Well, it takes a hard left turn, and um, I will say that it. I was worried partway through that it was going to be incredibly violent and it was going to go to a really dark place, but thankfully it doesn't. It's actually like there's there's not like a huge body count or anything, so I think that was a. That that's something in its favor. That's good. Are the aliens real? Well, that I, I'm not going to spoil that for you because then ah, so it's kind of like the mist. Well, yeah. So uh, I I definitely recommend checking it out. It's not Riz Ahmed is very good at playing crazy guys. He's the crazy guy. I'm sure of it. Okay, well I'll let you figure that out. But it will be on Amazon, <laughs> and it's it's kind of like Night Raiders, which we talked about before, where it's not breaking any new ground uh, some people will find it a little bit derivative or not having enough story or not enough plot um, but I think it's it's a worthwhile kind of character study and the two young guy uh, actors that they get to play his sons are quite good very believable not annoying like some young actors can be <laughs> so that's also okay a plus. awesome I, I I'm uh, curious about that one so the final one is kind of I guess one of the bigger name films to come out of TIFF and it's The Eyes of Tammy Faye. God does not want us to be poor. Mother Fowler, a pleasure. Now God has a voice in this fight. What's he fighting? Liberal agenda, homosexual agenda. Faith isn't political. You can't talk to him like that. Jerry Falwell is a powerful man, Tammy Faye. And the one thing I noticed is that they totally did a terrible job of marketing this. Do you know why? Why? Because Vincent D'Onofrio is not front and center. No, he is not. That is such an unfortunate circumstance. He maybe has less than 10 minutes of screen time, I would say. What? Yeah. He killed it in the trailer. Yeah. He looked interesting in the trailer. They use a lot of him in the trailer, but he's not in a lot of the movie. I hate it when they do that. Okay. Maybe that's a, an attempt to be kind of accurate to where this, where the character he was playing was in relation to the main characters, but whatever. Um, so this is a an adaptation of a documentary, actually, uh, by the same name that came out in 2000, all about the televangelist Tammy Faye Baker and her sort of fall from grace and her rebuilding her life a little bit before she died. I think she died in 2007. And for those who don't know Tammy Faye Baker, she was known, especially in the 80s and 90s, for this outlandish makeup that she would wear, These this heavy mascara, heavy eyeliner. And uh, she ended up, you know, when, when she initially fell from grace alongside her husband, Jim Baker, they made a lot of fun of the Bakers on like Saturday Night Live and other talk shows. So she became a bit of a household name for that reason. If you didn't already know her from like her music recording career, which she did through the televangelism stuff. Yeah, she's a bit of like an American cultural icon of a sort, probably more so for like our parents' generation, I would say, less so for us. Either way, I had seen the documentary 
late last year uh, because it was a favorite of my mom's actually. And then I was uh, when I heard that this film was coming to TIFF, I was like, well, you know, it's got an all-star cast. You got Jessica Chastain as Tammy Faye. You got Andrew Garfield as Jim Baker, Vincent D'Onofrio, who you already mentioned as uh, uh, Jerry Falwell Sr. So uh, right off the bat, you've got some great names in there. It's obviously being positioned as this big festival biopic with awards intentions. So I was like, yeah, what, what's it like? And the result is not a bad film, but definitely not a substantially different film or better film than the documentary. And you could actually get probably a better sense of Tammy Faye's personality from the documentary. So like they're clearly doing that biopic thing where they're smoothing over certain things and taking certain shortcuts to kind of tell the story of these characters for people who have absolutely no background in who the Bakers are. Great performances like Jessica Chastain is fantastic in the in the main role. She's got to get a nomination, right? Anytime you put on prosthetics oh, yeah. and put on a performance like that. Yeah, big time. She was unrecognizable actually to me. Yeah, especially like later in Tammy Faye's life when she puts on a bit more weight and the makeup gets even more extreme, like all of that. Um, or like there's some scenes where they're playing the young versions of the Bakers when they're like in college and they've had to put these like prosthetic cheeks on them and they look like chipmunks. It was really distracting. The only other thing I'll say is that there was a bit of a missed opportunity uh, in the film because, of course, since... Jim Baker went to prison for mail fraud for literally stealing millions of dollars from his congregants. Um, he has gotten out of prison and he's gone right back to his old schemes of selling weird products on his uh, Christian oriented show. Have you got your doomsday bucket? Well, that's the thing. He's known for those doomsday buckets. Now he keeps talking about the end of the world and how, you know, if you give him $2,000, he'll give you enough food for 10 years of living in a bunker somewhere. That's a great deal, Rob. I don't know why you aren't all over I mean, that. a part of me is like it's playing in the back of my head, especially with all the climate change stuff. But uh, I don't want to give I don't want to give Jim Baker the money is the, is the problem. I'll buy it from like a secular doomsday prepper company. <laughs> Probably like eating sawdust. Yeah, basically. It's re- rehydrated sawdust. <laughs> <laughs> Cheese flavored sawdust. So, yeah, I've missed opportunity to show Andrew Garfield recreating some of that stuff because I feel like that that's some of the funnier um, material to come out of the Baker's lives. Also, it would have gone a long way to backing up the idea of like Tammy Faye was probably the better of the two of them. You know, she didn't get she she never was charged with a crime. Wasn't she also like a huge AIDS icon? There's a a famous interview she did in I think 1985 with an AIDS patient uh, live on her televangelism show, which was very groundbreaking for the time because the uh, you know. Obviously, her husband and a lot of the other people in the church that she belonged to were very against this idea. And the movie kind of writes this off as a bit of like a random thing that happened to her. It doesn't really build it up the way it probably should have, which is another kind of hit against the movie, unfortunately. And it sort of serves more as a a setup for Vincent D'Onofrio to come in and sort of take over the church from them, claiming that it was like an immoral act or whatever. Um, rank them. Okay, ranking. In the number one spot, Flea, the animated documentary about the Afghan refugee. Um, number two was Out of Sync, the Spanish film about the sound designer. Uh, number three was Seven Prisoners, the Brazilian crime film. Number four was Night Raiders, the indigenous-made Canadian film set in a post-apocalyptic Canada. Number five was Encounter, the Riz Ahmed alien invasion story. Number six was Quickening, the Pakistani-Canadian story about a young woman. Number seven was Dug Dug, the Indian film about the motorcycle shrine. Number eight was Learn to Swim, the jazz romance. Number nine was The Eyes of Tammy Faye. And coming in at number 10 was France, the Lea Sadu journalism satire, I think that's what it was. <laughs> that was my TIFF experience. Awesome. We do have VIF coming up in the, uh, the next couple of weeks. Uh, so yeah, we will be balancing that out against some of the big October releases too, right? And we're closely reaching episode 100. Yes. So we have a special surprise launch of sorts uh, planned around that. Do you think we can coincide Dune with episode 100? Do you think it's a good idea? I think so. I think it might line up timing-wise because... Because uh, Dune comes out end of October now. Yeah, because I'm pretty sure if... Uh, and, you know, listeners out there don't hold this, hold us to this, but... 
if the timing works out, our next episode will be about No Time to Die. Excited! Uh, so that'll be episode 99, and then that may mean that episode 100 will be about Dune. So we've got a few extra bonuses for that one. Yes. Uh, yes. Looking forward to that. But that about does it for this episode. If you want more details on a few of the films that I've seen at the festival, I've got reviews of France and Seven Prisoners and Eyes of Tammy Faye up on kinetoscope.ca right now. So you can check those out. And until the next episode, my name is Robert Snow in Toronto. And my name is Jason Chen in Vancouver. Thank you for listening and we'll talk to you next time.